This is Aviation Careers Podcast, an aviation podcast about living your dream and pursuing an exciting aviation career. Your host, Carl Valeri, has over a decade of experience counseling pilots. Aviation Careers Podcast will help you navigate towards your aviation career goal. Here is your host, Carl Valeri. Ever wonder what it's like to be a Coast Guard helicopter pilot saving lives in treacherous conditions? Want to be a Navy flight instructor? Well, welcome to episode 39. Today I have with me a former Coast Guard helicopter pilot and Navy flight instructor, Steve Vigas. And Steve has a varied background and many interests, including a passion for automobiles. I'm really excited to listen as Steve takes us inside the cockpit of a Coast Guard helicopter on a rescue mission. Welcome to the podcast, Steve. Thanks, Carl. It's good to be here. <laughs> you know, that that sounds like a really cool job. Uh, before we get started, though, I uh, just want people to realize we're going to have a lot of pictures. You, uh, Steve has shared some really cool pictures, so if you could, go out to aviationcareerspodcast.com slash 39, and I'll have some really interesting photos of some missions that he's been on and some uh, some past things he's done. So definitely get definitely head out there. Also, if you could, if you if you like this podcast, go out and uh, visit our sponsors at aviationcareerspodcast.com. We're also working on a few things. I have a few new things on the website I just want to mention real quickly. Number one, uh, we, we're putting together some uh, loans, grants, and scholarships, and we also have a new jobs section on the website. The loans, grants, and scholarships will have a certain number of them out there. Uh, we're going to have a membership site where you'll be able to get all the loans, grants, and scholarships. We're going to have probably over a 1,000 listings of scholarships. There's quite a few out there for aviation, and I have hired someone full-time to help me out with that. So you'll see that in the future. But in the meantime, what I'll do is I'm going to put out the the more popular scholarships at the top of the screen there, so at least you can get started and uh, have a look for yourself. The jobs board that we're going to have, or actually it's it's more like a page where anything that comes out that's new, new jobs, et cetera, I'm going to put that out there. For instance, uh, just recently Mesa started hiring and also uh, Southwest Airlines. So you'll see how you can get there to their website and apply for those jobs. So take a look at that, aviationcareerspodcast.com. I'll announce some more information in the future. But getting back to today's uh, episode, this is really cool. I mean, I'm so excited and I've had a lot of requests from people that want to hear about somebody who's a Coast Guard pilot, but a Coast Guard helicopter pilot. And, and if you've ever listened to this podcast, you know that I've always wanted to fly helicopters. And the first helicopter I got to fly was a Bell Jet Ranger, and I absolutely loved it. And then when I started paying for it on my own, my own <laughs> went back to a Robinson, you know, an R-22. So I, I really would, would love to fly some of the cool helicopters that uh, Steve has flown. But, uh, you know, Steve, what, what's it like? I mean, this, this is so neat. What's it like to pluck somebody from the ocean? Pluck somebody from the ocean. You know, whenever the folks from the media, I guess you're a folk from the media, aren't you? I can't yeah. talk bad about you. They want to stick you in the corner and they go, hey, man, were you scared? <laughs> what was it like? Was it dark out there and stuff? We're pilots and we know that flying a helicopter and airplane is a mechanical skill, right? And we learn how to compartmentalize. So for us, it's just a matter of whether you could keep your scan going through the distractions, um, so I guess what I'm telling you is, uh, you know, shooting an instrument approach is not a lot, a lot unlike, uh, taking somebody off the back of a boat or landing on a ship or going through a storm at nighttime. It's just a skill set in a little bit different environment. It, it's, it's also the reason that a lot of us chose that career. Uh, like you, I like to fly. 
when I was younger, my dad had a, a tailor craft. We had a Corona airport in California. And I can remember bombing around and I don't know what's that thing burned, six gallons an hour or something like that. But uh, bombing around, taking off at, you know, 50 miles an hour, 40 miles an hour, 30 miles an hour, having backward races, all that kind of stuff. It, it gives you the bug. But but for me, I really was looking for kind of an underlying mission. And, uh, and, the, and the Coast Guard ended up kind of scratching that itch. So back to the question, right? What's it like flying, uh, flying a mission? It, it's really kind of a neat thing. Um, it's very technical, right? So you're down there uh, hovering, which is a lot like flying in formation. And then the whole time that, that, the, that the rescue's going on, you know, you're looking out the window and, and you see a guy in the water and you go, wow, I fly over water for a living. I spent a lot of time out here. The chances that I'm going to end up in the drink and that's the way I'm going to end my life are pretty good. And so uh, you're looking out the window, you kind of see yourself and that and puts a lot at stake. You know what I mean? That, I guess that would make me nervous. To be honest with you, I, I'm nervous when I fly over water all the time, and I do it quite often, and I have two engines. Uh, I've never done it in a single engine, and I'm assuming you have. You know, it's interesting. We picked up a gentleman one day. Uh, it was actually a, a gambler uh, trip coming back from somewhere down in New Jersey to an engine plane, and they lost an engine, and I'm told that the, the, one, of the engine, one of the propellers wouldn't feather. And so they were loaded down. I don't know where they were in fuel, but, you know, you know the kinds of problems you have with one engine that won't feather. And they ended up putting the thing in the water. And uh, we were able to take a couple folks out in the helicopter, and the boats came, picked up the rest. And the gentleman who was a co-pilot on that mission was a very new pilot. And it was a pretty big experience for him. You know, they um, – I don't remember how many people on board. I, I believe they ended up losing one. Um, unfortunately, and I, I don't know what the, what the problem was. I don't know if it was related to his condition or the, or the impact from the crash. But the gentleman who was the co-pilot, again, very early in his career, he had a lot of stuff to sort out. And uh, he actually came over to the air station in Brooklyn a couple times, and we sat down and talked and, you know, kind of talked about, uh, you know, the meaning of life and is flying really worth it. And, uh, and that conversation kind of, kind of went on. And I, I I believe that he ended up going back. His chief pilot sat down and talked to him a little bit about that. But, you know, um, going out there over the water again, I think after you put one in, is, is uh, certainly doesn't make you feel better about the experience. No, no. And it's, it's interesting you mentioned that because uh, there are a lot of people who have had some traumatic experiences in airplanes, and, and obviously you get to see them in boats, airplanes, et cetera. And, uh, we, you know, it's really com uncomfortable for us to talk about those things, especially here. We're talking about a career in aviation. And I'm trying to motivate people to look towards a career in aviation, but also to look towards a career that they enjoy. But you have to remember there, there's certain downsides to every career. This is one of those where you could hurt yourself and uh, possibly kill yourself during it. And there have been folks that that's happened to. And this, you know, you have seen that more often than most, uh, I would think, especially in boating, et cetera, that there's people that are doing a recreational activity that they love and, and uh, they wind up uh, hurting themselves or losing their life. That's, that's kind of hard to deal with. But you know what? In my mind, and this is my personal feelings, is I would rather have a life that's, that's filled with challenges and enjoyment than to have a life of what ifs. You know, what if I did that? Why, you know, how would my life have turned out? You know, and that I, I don't want to have any regrets. So, but I think it's important to mitigate that risk. Interestingly, you talked about a, a multi-engine aircraft over the water. And I've told my students, boy, you know, you really need to be careful flying over the water in a twin. What if your gear doesn't come up? You have to plan that you have enough fuel to make it to the other side. 
like you said, what if the engine doesn't feather? And that's that's another one. Boy, I didn't even think of that. You know, but that's a lot of drag out there if the propeller doesn't feather. And for those that are listening that don't understand the whole aerodynamics, what happens with the the uh, engine that quits? It's almost like a, a large uh, windmill or a plate that's out there, and it's it produces a lot of drag because it's just spinning on its own. And what we do is by feathering the propeller, we make it point the this pointy edge point into the wind, so it doesn't move anymore. And reduces all the drag, but that's a quick explanation of that. But see, that that was a, that was a great example of of just plucking some of the water that's gone down an airplane. But I'm sure you've done a lot of boat rescues, I'd assume. Yeah, we 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 did a lot of that stuff. Um, I think as people look at you know, you, you say I want to fly, great, you get to fly an airplane. But what do you want to do? Do you want to go take do photography? Do you want to haul packages? Do you want to haul people? Do you want to go haul explorers to the South Pole? Uh, what you would see in this kind of a job, let's say uh, you've got a listener that says, yeah, I want to be a Coast Guard pilot. What's it like? Well, I like to tell people it's a lot like working for the fire department. Uh, you know, the fire department's on call. If your house burns down, the Coast Guard is on call for you if you have problems at sea. So and let's uh, use Brooklyn as the example. We, most of the time we had about three or four helicopters available. So there was about uh, anywhere between 14 and 20 pilots and with a, with a crew of two, two pilots and then a crewman and, and mechanics and such, uh, we probably spent the night at the, the firehouse, the Coast Guard Air Station, maybe every anywhere from every other night to every fifth night. So a typical rotation was every third or every fourth night. You know, you go in just like a fireman. You show up at work. Somebody brought some dinner. You know, you, you go out and do maybe a training flight or, or fly some kind of a patrol mission. Come back, sit down, have dinner. Uh, sometimes my, my wife would come by and, and bring my daughter at the, uh, at the time she was really young, you know, we sit down and watch TV for a while. And then every so often <laughs> the alarm goes off just like the firehouse and you run downstairs and you hop in the machine and, and, and you go off offshore and do your mission. Uh, that's kind of exciting stuff. You know what I mean? Oh, sure. sounds exciting. Yeah. But, but, but the day to day stuff, right? It's not that glamorous day to day. Boats don't sink every day. Actually, they do, but um, they don't always sink in your district every day. Right. We spend a lot of our time doing, you know, uh, marine environmental protection. That is, uh, a boat springs a leak and they want to find out how far out the oil's gone. They need to go map it. We would do that. We would do patrols for security, looking for, um, you know, uh, undocumented vessels in a, in a location they don't need to be. We do fisheries enforcement. So there were some uh, closed areas off the East Coast that had been overfished and the fishermen got together and said, okay, we've got a program. We're going to limit the number of days you can fish. And so we would go out there and enforce those rules, come up on the boats at two o'clock in the morning, figure out what they were fishing for, figure out whether they were permitted, talk to the captain, make sure everybody was happy. You know, they, they didn't need to get anybody moved ashore. And so that day-to-day stuff, right? That day-to-day stuff is pretty darn good. I mean, you know, it's the the fireman's day to day stuff probably pretty good too. Uh, they're out doing building inspections, right? But every day, we're you know we were we were pretty much flew. I can say, I I don't know if I flew every day, but I flew close to every day. Wow, that's a lot. Yeah, that's that's really great. You know, uh, I spent a little bit of you don't know this, but I spent a little bit of time in the Marine Corps when I was a young kid. And, you know, at the time, uh, we didn't have a war. And some of those pilots were flying eight or nine hours a month just just to keep minimum proficiency. And then I, and then I went over here and we were flying, you know, 30, 40, 50, 60 hours a month, de- depending on how busy the search and rescue season was. 
Now you had mentioned all the you know search and rescue season. The the um, it's interesting. I'm starting to get a feeling that it's it's not all about going out there and saving people. I, I'm trying to get wrap my head around this though. If you if you could figure out a percentage of of time that you're out doing search and rescue compared to what you, your other jobs, like you said, with with a, you know like sundowner patrol, maybe you can even explain maybe what that is, that type of thing. How would you compare that? How, what percentage of the time are you actually trying to save somebody? That's a great question. I don't know what the current statistics are. I've been retired for a few years. Uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna throw out a number there. Maybe maybe ten percent. And and that you know that's interesting because that number has gone down a lot. Uh, back in the early days when I first started flying, people would go out get in a boat, God bless them, uh, go out on wherever they were headed. And they didn't have a cell phone, right? They didn't have a GPS. They had a radio. If something went wrong, there was no way to ha- call home and tell mama, right. right? I mean, think about it now. Now it's not a big deal. If your boat starts to sink, you know exactly where you are. If your boat starts to sink, within reason, you may be within cell range, and you can just call home and say, I have a problem. If your boat has a problem because of weather and you end up on some island, you know, you go out there and you pick up your cell phone and you call home and say you're okay. Back in the day, that wasn't the case. So we spent a lot of time looking for overdue boaters. And I don't think that happens as much. So I think, you know, on on the one side, it's a better use of the taxpayer's resources, right? Because we're not flying around looking for somebody that isn't out there. But on as a pilot, it's it's a lot more rewarding because that tells you if you're looking for somebody, they probably are lost. Right, and I, boy, I tell you, I really appreciate the Coast Guard. I've, you know, some of you know, I lived out in the Bahamas, and boy, their mission there was was pretty, uh, pretty incredible. They, you know, Basra, the Bahamas Air Sea Rescue has their their boats and ships, but the U.S. man, they, the Coast Guard, you can't beat it. They, they those folks are out there just finding people. If I was ever in trouble, I I would actually uh, make sure that uh, I called on a radio and said, "Hey, come help me," and uh, and they have. And, and a lot of times they, they, there's other, this is interesting too that I found out. They also use other resources. Say there's a civilian resource that they can use. Uh, they'll partner with them, like during a rescue process. Say it's like, you know, what was it, Tow Boat US and those type of things, or Boat Tow US. The, they'll actually say, hey, listen, there's somebody in that area and they've gone out, but they'll monitor the situation to make sure everything's okay. I live on an island right now and I see the, the co, and right near a Coast Guard station in St. Petersburg, Florida. And those folks are out there constantly. You know, th- there was another thing that I, I'm interested in about the Coast Guard and their different varied missions is what, you know, I noticed that they have this thing, I think it's called Sundowner Patrol, and they go up and down the coast. And at nighttime, when I'm coming in on my boat, I've noticed every single night they're out there. And is there such a thing? Number one, because that's what I was told it's called. And uh, do they do that every single day? <laughs> I don't think I'm going to give you a good answer, but let me tell you what I think you're what you're talking about. Florida is a very dense boating uh, area, right? You can go out there any any day, and you know, <laughs> goodness knows, I, you turn on the radar, and it's just there's just boats everywhere. Um, so the folks that are making it back, the recreational boaters making it back at the end of the day, they should all be heading back by the time sun goes down. And I would think that um, you know, if you're going to find a problem just by stumbling upon it, that's the time of day to do that. Because because the concentration of boats is going to be smaller. So if there were 500 boats out there at 3 o'clock in the afternoon, uh, 30 minutes before the sun goes down, there's probably six. 
And it's real easy to pick them up on the radar, head out there and look at them, make sure they're okay, wave at them. You know, they, they appreciate the presence. But yeah, uh, when what we used to do in the summertime in Long Island is we had the uh, Coast Guard Auxiliary help us. Are you familiar with yes. them? Oh, yeah. Okay. But you so, can explain a little bit about it if you don't mind. Yeah, Coast Guard Auxiliary is not unlike the Civil Air Patrol. It's a, it's a volunteer organization, and they assist the Coast Guard with, uh, with, I guess, probably all of the missions now. They'll fly their own airplane, and they get some kind of compensation for uh, fuel and, and, and cost of doing the mission. I don't know if it covers the full cost of operating the plane, but they're uh, kind of aviation nuts like, like you <laughs> and me. And, uh, you know, it's a, it's a chance for them to get back. So in an area like Florida, um, you know, down in the Keys or somewhere like that, where you want to have good coverage and there's, and there's pretty good density, if I wanted to fly that patrol, I would probably be inclined to send the uh, Coast Guard Auxiliary down the beach and they can detect a problem. Now, it's, it's a little bit hard to hoist a person out of a boat from a Cessna 172, <laughs> but, it, but it is a good platform for doing that. And that's what you'll see a lot of those guys doing, particularly in the summertime. Uh, let's see, you, you had a private plane for a while, right? Yes. Oh, yeah. What's it cost to operate a piston engine plane? Oh, got direct operating costs about uh, 100 bucks an hour. 100 bucks an hour, okay. That's just direct operating. That doesn't include maintenance and everything. <laughs> right. Well, uh, I flew the H-65 Dolphin, and, uh, of course, you don't get a chance to fly your family around there for fun. So Buddy and I decided we were going to go down and rent one, and uh, we found an operator over at Teoboro that had a Dolphin uh, 265. Really? And he said, you know, he said, I'll, I'll just rent it to you for your operating cost. You don't need a pilot. We, all, we had our ratings. We had a commercial pilot's license. And he said, uh, I'll just let you have it for my cost, eighteen fifty an hour. Oof. So when you look when you look at the the uh, the cost to fly that Cessna up and down the beach, right, and and give the taxpayers really good coverage in the summertime when they really need it, versus one sortie in the helicopter, it, it's a big difference. That sure is. You know, and, and I'm glad you brought this up because it it also makes me think that our listeners can also look towards those other things to either to build hours or or as careers too, as going out there and. and uh, and helping out, I, I'm sure there are some people that are paid. I assume in the just like the Civil Air Patrol, there's very few that get paid in the Civil Air Patrol. It's usually it's a whole main, you know, 99 percent are a volunteer force. But there are some paid positions there if you really want to do that. Yeah, if if you're interested, I'll find you a link and you can stick it on your page there. And uh, uh, I don't know if it's the director of auxiliary for the for the district, but it, it's really is a fantastic organization. Uh, obviously, most of many of those folks will own their own airplanes. They're fairly successful business people, so it's a, a good group to network with. And I believe that one of the, the tenets of the organization is fellowship. So one of their stated goals is let's get together and talk about flying. Let's get together and talk about boating. So it's a, just a great organization for that. Gosh, there's so much uh, around that. You know, the Coast Guard has, uh, just in general, let's just talk Coast Guard in general, there are so many jobs out there. If you don't, say you don't want to fly airplanes or fly helicopters, there's other things you can do. Maybe, Steve, you might have some examples as, a, as far as what people can do in aviation without actually flying. A lot of the folks will start out, uh, you know, you and I are a little bit older. I don't know if it's the if if midlife career. Uh, but but they do all of their own maintenance. They do um, they use contract maintenance to do the major overhauls of the aircraft. You know, uh, stripping it down and repainting it and TBO and the engines and all that. Um, but but the day to day maintenance actions, the body work, the the engine work, the avionics work, all of that stuff, packing the survival equipment is done at the station, kind of like the firehouse, by 
uh, by enlisted folks that have been trained by the Coast Guard. And, and it's a great program. The thing that I really like about the Coast Guard, and I don't know that this is always the case in the other services, but they're very big on the fixer flyer philosophy. And that is, if you're going to turn a wrench on a helicopter, you're going to fly in a helicopter. That, that, you know, what do they talk about? Uh, being invested in something, you know, uh, pigs, pigs invested in breakfast, right? Right, right. Um, you're invested, you know, sure. <laughs> there's, when it comes time to make sure that, that you, that you tighten that safety wire and that you picked up all your tools, if you know that there's like a one in three chance that you're going to fly in that helicopter today, it really gives you a whole different perspective. And I really, I really, really like that. It's also good for us because uh, the Coast Guard is a very small service and the, and the ships are very small. Not like landing on an aircraft carrier. When they go to sea, they typically will be, well, they're going to be the only uh, aircraft on the ship because that's, that's all it'll handle. I have, uh, I don't even know, like 300 days at sea, probably 200 of those are on ships that are smaller than 300 feet. So when you land on the flight deck, you know, one of them, the tail hangs over the back of the flight deck. It, it's real small. So I show up. It's uh, it's me and a co-pilot. I, I say I do. This is this is obviously past now. Uh, we would show up with uh, with pilot, co-pilot, and two mechs, and we'd be gone for you know two, three, four days at a time. Have some spare parts, and that was the crew. So if something broke. Guess who fixed a helicopter? Whoever was there. Right. <laughs> the, you know, if it's if it's John and Marty, and Marty's a mech, then John's going to be an electronics guy, and they're going to work it out. So uh, that, just, just a really great program. I, I, I started out as a um, kind of a fixer in the Marine Corps, working on uh, uh, Marine Corps aircraft and the avionics. And we were very specialized. We, I wasn't going to fly in an F-18. I wasn't going to fly in an A-6. That doesn't mean that I didn't try to do my job. But it's just a, it's just a little bit, it's one more level removed from the action. And that's, well, that's what I think is really fun as a Dickens about the Coast Guard. Yeah. It sounds, you know, in the Marines, they, they have a lot of crossover. It sounds like the, the Coast Guard does, too. I didn't know that. This is fascinating. Um, you know, going back to Dolphin, I, I'm assuming that's like the coolest aircraft you've ever flown. Uh, that is the coolest aircraft I've ever flown. What, what's it like? I mean, what, like if you could just take us in the cockpit, I mean, is it, is it fast? Is it, you know, maneuverable? What, what's it like to fly this thing? The thing about a helicopter is uh, helicopters are limited in their speed. And if you think about how a rotor blade works, uh, as it spins around, you have one advancing into the relative wind, and then and the blade on the opposite side is retreating from the wind. So um, you think about stall speed on a wing. The advancing blade is going to be flying a lot faster than the retreating. Now, at some point, you get going so fast that there's no wind over that retreating blade, right? And so it stalls. And... Uh, what I'm telling you is that there is an aerodynamic design limitation in helicopters that's going to keep you from going very fast. Now, that particular aircraft does about 165 knots, and that's about as fast as you're going to go. But I'll tell you what, the French did a wonderful job on it. It's four blades, super smooth, uh, all composite, and uh, it's it's loaded down with equipment because they have a lot of missions, but it's just a wonderful machine. Um, we had a We had a flight director on it that was capable of flying a fully coupled ILS, okay, hands off, come in, come up on glide slope, it grabs it. Uh, the only thing you're doing is, is kind of controlling the speed a little bit on, on the approach. And then at the bottom, if you don't do anything, uh, it would automatically put you in a 50-foot hover in, in like a 5 or 10 knot taxi, yeah. And, you know, if you get in trouble, there's a button that says go around. You push the go around button, it initiates a go around. 
And then, you know, you're breaking out the SID and, and trying to figure out what you need to do or missed approaches instructions or, you know. So that that is a tremendous capability. Now, we like that. Uh, you and I like that for getting in and out of airports in bad weather. So imagine, if you will, the case uh, where you've got a real foggy day and there's a gentleman that's, you know, bobbing around in the ocean with his family, 150 miles offshore. It's foggy and they need some help. So how are you going to get to them? Well, what you do is you, is you fly over and you find the boat with the radar, give them a call. You know, you're above the clouds there, right? And uh, when it's time to go pick them up, it's very easy to just turn the, turn the helicopter's uh, flight control system on and let it bring you down into a hover. And it'll actually fly all the way down. As soon as you break out of the clouds, you can take over and start flying it yourself. So for workload management at 2 o'clock in the morning, it's, it's just a wonderful thing to have. Well, I didn't, you know, they, they talk about you finding your hover button. Well, there's an actual button for that in that aircraft. <laughs> you know? it, it's, it's not as good as it sounds. <laughs> no. <laughs> but, you know, it's a good starting point. You know, when you were saying this, though, that to me, that sounds, well, sounds a little bit scary almost. If you're, and I've done an auto land before, and that was a little disconcerting the first time I did it. When you're coming through the clouds, you're sitting there, and in the back of your mind saying, boy, I hope this stuff works, you know? And it, it does. It's just that you have to constantly and really actively monitor that automation. I, I think a lot of people don't realize a couple things. Number one, helicopters have become highly automated, and also they can do instrument approaches. And, uh, you know, this this hovering and and flying on autopilot that's that's pretty cool stuff but you can actually fly an instrument approach how how in the world do you do that i'm sure there's a lot of people wondering how do you fly an ils well you know it's interesting once you get a helicopter in forward flight it flies a whole heck of a lot like an airplane when we went to flight school they trained us in airplanes first probably because they're cheaper right and to give us an opportunity to cross over. But really, once you get through translational lift, it, it it really feels a whole heck of a lot like an airplane. You wouldn't really see a big difference until you brought it into a hover. I know that sounds kind of wacky. So I guess it, it's better to keep your forward motion while you're doing it. Obviously, you're going to have to in, a, in an ILS. But you don't ever, like, stop on the ILS and hover stop, and just stay there, do you? <laughs> Fly back up the glide stick. Yeah, exactly. That's yeah, what they I'm thinking. Don't, they, don't, they don't like it when you do that. <laughs> no, no. I thought that would be, like, cool. I want to go backwards on the glide stick. <laughs> yeah, it's it's interesting because, uh, well, you've flown helicopters. You know it takes a lot more power to fly it in a hover than it takes in forward flight. So when we would go down and uh, and hoist the boats, uh, particularly at nighttime when you want to have a little bit extra power margin, uh, we would actually have them get underway and start moving and uh, get a little bit of wind over the rotors. I mean, we're talking about, you know, cut, cutting the power requirement by 30 to 50 percent. It, it's a big difference. It's a it's a really huge difference. Wow, that is. And, you know, it, it's interesting what we were talking about, uh, flying IFR and hovering and that type of thing. And. I, I said something before about a hover button. Uh, that's kind of a term that a lot of folks use in aviation, especially flying helicopters. There's, there's, when you start trying to hover and it, it's kind of hard to explain how to hover. It's, it's, it's quite difficult at first. And, and believe me, I'm not that great at it. I finally was able to get to the point where I could actually hover and to explain to a fixed wing guy, it's like, it's like trying to flare and land. All of a sudden at one point you get it. And being able to hover, I think I finally figured it out. I was in a, in a twin star and I was actually able to hover finally in that. And it's the neatest feeling when you can stop in space, but it's, it's like a balancing act. It's like, it's like balancing, I don't know, like on, 
trying to sit on top of a basketball and, and not fall down or something like that. I don't know if there's a good way to explain it. If you've ever flown formation, and most pilots haven't, it's a whole heck of a lot like that. So what you notice when you first started doing it is there's a lag. If you're in a 10-foot hover and you want to go down to, down to 5 feet, right, you take a little bit of power out, and then you've got to instantly, you know, if you, if you lower the collective an inch, as soon as you do that, you've got to bring it back up a half an inch, right, and, and kind of bracket it. And that's, and that's how it feels when you fly formation. You make a change. The change changes your, your closure rate, your relative rate, and then you've got to take it right back out again. So that, that's where people get into trouble. They, it just takes a while with each machine to get used to what that lag time is. But once you get that figured out, it's not a big deal. I, I think I could teach a monkey how to hover in about three hours if I, if I had the time. Good. I'm signing you up for that. I'm coming over. <laughs> you got to show me how to hover better. <laughs> but, uh, you know, it's interesting, too, what you said about, about learning how to do all these different, having all these skills. It's not impossible. I think some people are listening to this. They're in the middle of their training, and they're saying, gosh, you know, I, I'm having this stumbling block. And I think that's uh, that you plateau, and you can't get past a certain point. And, and hovering a lot of times for people is that, you know, what advice would you give to people as far as hitting that wall and, and trying to move forward? You know, what, what would you tell them? I'm going to be, I'm a little bit biased here. So I've been civilian trained and I've been military trained. Um, when I soloed in Cessna 150, we, we, I went out and did some training with my instructor who was a very young guy. Uh, he probably had, uh, <laughs> I don't know, 225 hours at the time, much better pilot than I. So I remember I was at Fullerton Airport. I went out. He's, you know, it was the day, right? I mean, my, my dad was even there, uh, you know, because we thought it might be the day. And so he, we, we land, and uh, he doesn't say anything. He just gets out of the plane, right? So he gets out, and I go out and taxi out to the runway. And I take off. And um, I don't know if you've flown in Southern California, but uh, it gets a little, it can get a little hazy. You were talking about flying into San Diego the other day. Yeah, yeah, podcast. I was in San Diego, yeah. sure. Okay, yeah. and it was a beautiful day, right? Yeah, it's always but, beautiful, right? It, well, it is in San Diego <laughs> because San Diego's on the water. Now, Fullerton is, is up against the mountains, okay? So all that smog and crap from the L.A. basin, it, the, the ocean air pushes it and it hits those San Bernardino mountains and it stops, and it seems to be some kind of a photoreactive event. But in the evening, what you'll get is you get this like uh, grayish, brownish haze that sits in there. So this was one of those days. It was a real calm day and all that smog and crap had floated down there. So I took off. I did my crosswind turn. I went downwind and I, and I, and I was in line. There were people, you know, it was in the evening and people were just arriving at the airport. So I was like number seven to land, right? And my uh, generator light came on. I'm like, oh, okay, yeah, no big deal, right? Alternator generator, I don't remember what the XN is, now you know. And uh, I'm thinking, well, what am I going to do? Now, as a military guy, right, before I went flying, before I soloed, I knew what to do if that light came on. I knew what to do if the gear didn't go down. I knew what to do if my fuel gauge failed. I knew that the pressure gauge was fed by a mechanical device here, and it went to an electronic there. And if it was doing this, then you pull that circuit breaker. And if it was doing that, then, you know, we knew all that stuff had been sorted out. Somebody had crashed a plane making all those mistakes and they wrote it down. Well, that didn't happen here, okay? So when I came back around, when I was going downwind and my light went on, I'm like, well, darn, I don't know what I'm going to do, you know? Um, it's like a Volkswagen. Rev the engine, maybe it'll go away. That didn't work. So I called my instructor on the, on the radio, right? And, and he's down there watching. Well, there's a helicopter hovering next to him, so he's not going to help me. So I'm thinking, well, I don't know. I, it didn't, I don't think it dawned on me to break the manual out and read it. <laughs> 
So I called the tower and I thought, well, I'm not going to declare an emergency. That's kind of goofy. So I'll just continue. I said, you know, I, I want to stay in the pattern land. And they said, great, you know, continue. We'll call your base. So by the time they called my base, I was so far down. I was past Cal State Fullerton. I made the turn and you couldn't see the airport. Now, technically, I think I was probably IFR. I don't think I met the visibility requirements. So here I am. I'm rolling out on, you know, he finally calls my turn and I roll out on final. And I dial up the the uh, local radio tower up there, and I'm flying the needle back to find the dang airport on my solo with a light on that I don't know the ramifications of. So um, what I'm telling you is that the, the level of preparation that you get going in and being trained as a military pilot and preparing for contingencies and knowing what to expect from the aircraft is very different than the experience that some of us might have getting trained at the local airport. There was a question that led into that, but I think the point, I think the, the point of the discussion was the, whatever it is that you need to do, right? It, it may look daunting. Uh, with, with the proper training, you know, everything is very manageable, there's there's safety points and, and, you know, the folks that are teaching you have hundreds of hours of experience and they, they, they've learned, not only have they learned by teaching people, but they've also learned by being taught by instructors that teach people. And the other thing too, I mean, they, they, there's, a, you know, the point was before trying to make is that there's, everybody has these these walls and and these gates and they all run up the hill and they they plateau in their training but you you can get beyond that i mean this this you you got beyond yours obviously and there's always a during your training periods there's always some kind of difficulty uh nobody's going to be perfect nobody's going to get you know training the folks that they trained over at mcdill air force base they they were very motivated they were terrific but everybody had some challenge somewhere and they were able to get through that challenge Going back to what you said, though, and there's a good point in here, too, as far as training is concerned. You really, if you're going to start flying anything, helicopters, planes, you really have to look at the organization that's training you and look at their curriculum. Because there are some that do a, there's many that do a better job than others at training you to actually be a better pilot based on your knowledge. Because like you said, when the, when you, you, all you needed to do was turn that switch off, your alternator switch off and back on. It probably would have reset itself. It probably just tripped offline. But if you didn't know that and you didn't get that in your training, then that's a negative there. So you, you, you need to find out how much actual training are you going to get based on your systems, etc. The military, they, they do a, a pretty darn good job of this. Uh, the civilian world, it varies. It varies on where you, cause, cause you are going out there and you're the one shopping for an instructor. So it's very important to do your research and find a good school that's going to give you a great background. I, I spent some time at, at a state college recently, and I think that they do a wonderful job explaining all these different uh, scenarios and the way they're doing it. It was at Polk State College. The way that they have been doing it is through simulators. So they can go and give you all these different failures before you get in the airplane. So next time when the alternator light goes on, You'll know what to do, and you'll know to pull out that checklist. So I think that was that was awesome that you brought that up, Steve. And and I think that I wanted to add to that point that you really do need to shop around for for the flight school. Get started, though. I would have to say, you know, if if that's the path that somebody wants to choose, they want to go and do the time with the military and have them train them, and they're interested in helicopters. Uh, I think there's some exceptions to this rule, but if I wanted to be an instrument helicopter pilot, I would probably look at one of the seagoing services like the Navy or the Marine Corps or the Coast Guard. 
I don't know that the Army folks, while they do get instrument training, many of their uh, rotary-wing aircraft are not equipped for it or traditionally haven't been. And uh, they're growing. They're really good at growing tactical, low-level, you know, combat-ready VFR pilots. The uh, seagoing services, you know, again, there's a lot of overlap, but their emphasis is going to be on that on that instrument work to get in and out because there's really no plan B at sea. You know, you're not just going to land in the woods once you, once you take off. Uh, you've got to have you got to have a plan B, and that's always instrument work. So uh, for the folks that are thinking about, hey. Maybe I want to fly helicopters, but I'd like to work for the airlines. I want to keep my instrument skills up. I would, again, with some exceptions, but I would probably look at the seagoing services. Let's talk a little bit about, about career since you, you we've bumped into this now. What is a good career path? And I know you talked about it a little bit. For somebody that wants to get into the, the Coast Guard specifically, let's just talk Coast Guard, as a helicopter pilot, because I, I think it's really cool. That, and where would you start? What age range should you look at? What should you do, say, in high school or how to prepare yourself for a, for a job in the Coast Guard? That's a great question, Carl. I had a lot of friends uh, in the Coast Guard that had come from different different services. So at the unit that we flew out of Brooklyn with, I would say probably half of the pilots that were stationed there had come from the Army, believe it or not. And the Army has a warrant officer program. We joke about high school to flight school. But a lot of those guys went and did that. And then once they got, uh, I don't remember what the number was, 600 hours? There was some magic number back then. Then they could come over to the Coast Guard. And so a lot of those guys didn't have a college degree. Uh, I think they had some deal where they had to get it later. But the Army would make them warrants. The Coast Guard would make them ensigns. And now they're commissioned, well, they're they're, uh, regular line officers and so that's kind of a backdoor path there. Uh, we had folks come over from the Navy or the Air Force. And then, of course, uh, among the organic Coast Guard people, like, like myself, uh, I, I came into the Coast Guard to fly. It's interesting. I was, um, I was working in – actually, I was working at Disneyland Park in California at the time. And I was taking flying lessons over at Fullerton. And I really had always wanted to be a pilot. Matter of fact, I joined the Marine Corps because I wanted to be a jet pilot. And I figured out along the way that if there's no war, it's just a horribly <laughs> unfulfilling job. Um, I, 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 I'm sure they had some fun, but I, I talked to a lot of pilots that were very disappointed because they didn't get to fly. And I met a Coast Guard guy in my travels. And so uh, when I got out and, and finished up my degree, which is a requirement uh, in general to become an officer, which is a requirement to fly, I kind of, the plan was to get out and finish school, and I had such a great job at Disney. I worked in the sound department. I got to talk, got to meet people that do stuff like you and I do, but they did it for a living and did it in some really cool ways. I, I, I woke up one day, and I knew that with my background, the age cutoff was going to be 28 years old to go to flight school. And I took stock, and I said, I'm 27. Uh, I'm spending all my free money to learn how to fly on my own. I got a condo. I don't have a wife. There's, I, there's nothing holding me down here, right? So what the heck? And I went ahead and, and put the package in that I had promised myself years before I would do. And I was very fortunate. I got to go to uh, officer candidate school. But part of that decision process was that they didn't guarantee me uh, that I was going to be a pilot. And so I had to sort through the whole, okay, what's plan B? You know, How many years is this going to cost me? I had to sign a four-year contract just to be able to be considered to go to flight school. But what it, one of the gentlemen that I had spoken to a lot in, in making the decision, he said, 
and again, this has been this has been more than this has been twenty years ago. Uh, he said, "You know, the the Coast Guard is an organization that that values pilots, yes, but really we're a seagoing service, and the guys that drive the ships are really the rock stars. And if you want to fly, and you're and you're medically suited, and you're not a knucklehead, you're probably going to get a chance to do that." And I would say out of my officer candidate school class, um, that really kind of came to pass. I mean, all the folks that I know, and, and, and I'd say I think 11 of us out of 80 had an opportunity to go to flight training pretty much right away. Uh, and there were a few other folks that were interested in. And probably over the next five years, all of the folks that still wanted to do it really had an opportunity to do it. So that's pretty, pretty exciting. Uh, so back to, back to answer your question, there are a couple of paths to commissioning. One is to go to the Coast Guard Academy, which is, uh, you know, just like the other services academies, just like uh, West Point and the Naval Academy and the Air Force Academy. There's a little bit of difference, though, unless it's changed, that particular service academy did not require a congressional appointment. So whatever the application process was, it wasn't also about getting the congressman from your district to um, to to basically recommend you and give you one of, one of those uh, quotas. Uh, there's another path to commissioning, and that's through the uh, United States Merchant Marine Academy. And a lot of people don't know that, but uh, the Merchant Marine Academy uh, trains folks that uh, drive the merchant ships back and forth over the ocean. And uh, with a commission from there, I believe that you're allowed to enter the Navy, the Marine Corps, or the Coast Guard up- upon graduation. So uh, those are some some different choices. And then for the <laughs> maybe the folks starting a little bit later in life that have already been to school, they've got an officer candidate program. I'll dig around and see if I can find you links to, to the uh, to the Coast Guard Academy and to the uh, officer candidate school. So I, I have no idea what the current requirements are. But that's that's the general. So the theme is you're going to need a bachelor's degree and you're going to need to be not an old, not too old of a person. Right. Whatever the current requirements are. And we'll have those links uh, on Aviation Careers Podcast uh, so that people can go out there and, and do their own research. Now, that academy uh, is actually... Yeah, the, the academy is up in New London, Connecticut. Cape May is, uh, is, is the basic training facility for where, the, where all of the mechanics would go to train, train before they got their skills training and, and uh, working on helicopters and airplanes. Gotcha, gotcha. Interesting. And uh, that's that's kind of interesting, too, the whole New London area, because you get to see all the, the nuclear submarines, and, and uh, that's kind of interesting to go up there. I assume you spent a little time up there? You know, I hauled some people back and forth up there. I've, I've landed on the grass, and I've met the cadets, and, uh, you know, we, we used to patrol up in that area. It's it's very pretty. Um, if, if you've been up there, I guess, uh, Mystic Seaport's up there. It's a real nice area. Yeah, it's gorgeous. So this this path to becoming a, a Coast Guard pilot uh, in helicopters, it, it sounds to me you need to be a little more motivated. You have to get yourself a college degree. But I wonder if the Coast Guard will allow you to join and then have them pay for the degree like some of the other services? I don't know what the current programs are. I can tell you that I do have a lot of friends who, who ended up a career in flying, had started out as enlisted folks. Um, I, I know that in the officer candidate class I was in, probably at least half of the class had come up through the ranks. I'll also tell you that there are some really, really sharp folks in the Coast Guard, um, and and the competition is stiff. So if if the plan was to go in that way and get your degree using some kind of a tuition assistance program, it certainly could be done. 
But I'll tell you what, if it was me, if it was my kid and I was advising them, I would probably try to get, get their degree up front and then uh, send them in through that door. So now you have a lot of friends that were in the Coast Guard and have uh, been through the program, retired, and moved on in life. I'm wondering if they were helicopter pilots and then decided not to stay with the Coast Guard or say they retired, I wonder what they could do with their, their licenses afterwards. Do you, have you kept in touch with anybody and, and know what they're doing now as far as flying? Most of the folks I know that wanted to go to the airlines at some point in their career, they, they requested a transition to fly C-130s. Or uh, the Coast Guard also flies a uh, one of the Falcon models, and and they they you know halfway through their career they said ah eventually when I retire I'd like to fly for the airline so they they did some kind of a transition that's what most of those folks did I don't know that many folks that ended up flying uh, you know passenger airlines directly from helicopters although I, I'm sure that there's an exception I just can't think of it but uh, Maryland State Police for a long time and probably still now uh, operated the Dolphin. So I, I, it's amazing how many Maryland State Police pilots there are that used to be Coast Guard pilots. Imagine that. <laughs> there are also, uh, you know, I've got friends that are flying, uh, you know, EMS, hospital transfer type things. Uh, I've got a couple friends that are flying uh, folks back and forth to the oil rigs down in Florida. I've got a buddy that lives in Saudi Arabia that flies uh, folks back and forth out to the uh, to the oil rigs out there. A lot, I would say a lot of a lot of police and 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 what do you call it? Uh, hospital transfer folks. One, <laughs> real good for actually. Uh, I sent you some pictures, and there's a gentleman on there. His name his name is Brian McCarthy. Brian isn't with us anymore, but uh, Brian actually landed a job flying an owner of a football team in his private helicopter. Doesn't get any better than that, does it? Oh, that's cool. Yeah, that's a good deal. So so there's a, there's some really nice jobs out there. I mean, you think about it. All the all the big shots in New York City, you know, maybe they may have a, a airplane at Teterboro, but they're really big shots. They've got a helicopter. Oh yeah, they sure do. And and construction companies, et cetera, they they a lot of them have helicopters. I flew with a gentleman that had a uh uh, Falcon, uh, excuse me, uh, Gulfstream, but he also had a helicopter to get him in and out of some sites. So there's another application. Interestingly enough, I did a lot of transitions uh, from helicopter to fixed wing uh, down in the Texas area and uh, in Hobby. And there was a, a company called Techstar there and another one called PHI uh, over in Louisiana. They, uh, A lot of those folks decided to go into the airlines. And the reason they told me that they were going towards airlines is that it's less competitive. There's, in other words, there's so many more fixed wing jobs out there with the airlines than there are in helicopters. But with that said, if, if you really love helicopters, you can combine your careers. I'll give you a good example. I have a friend that he flew in the army helicopters and he's a pilot flying a 767 with uh, UPS, I think it is. And on the weekends, he comes home, or when he's off, he flies for the local TV station, and he also does some work with the local police department also. And so there's there's a lot of different things that you can get into flying helicopters, if that really is your passion. It's just, I, I guess you have to go in knowing that if you compare the number of jobs, there's a lot more jobs flying fixed wing than there are compared to helicopters. There's a lot more competitive out there. And if you look at it in the long run, that's why I think a lot of folks go to the airlines, is that your retirement, your benefits, and your pay in the long run will probably be much better flying for an airline or for a corporation than they are 
with a, you know, as a helicopter operator. There are exceptions to that rule, of course. Well, one, one thing that comes to mind for me, though, is, is comes down to your basic philosophy about business. If you want to work for somebody else, I think you're right. If you want to work for yourself, you just want to hang out a shingle and operate, I think I would look to helicopters. If I want to take, you know, photos of real estate, if I want to do executive transport, if I want to, you know, uh, do map surveying things, I think that there are, uh, I think it's, 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 Perhaps easier, maybe maybe I'm lost here, but I can think off the top of my head of many more opportunities as an entrepreneur to start a helicopter-based business than I can to start a, a fixed wing-based business. And, and I have to agree as far as the, the helicopter and the photos and, and what you're saying there, because I did a lot of aerial photography, fixed wing. And I had to really sell it, you know, that they were a lot cheaper than the helicopter. We can get some similar type photos, but... If you want to be on station for a long time, uh, there's nothing like having a helicopter. If you want to be over your target and over your your photo shoot for a long time and get a little bit closer and get the different angles, uh, you, you kind of can't do that in, a, in an airplane. You have to you know, really do a lot more coordinating, whereas with a helicopter, you can say, hey, put me over there and get me the shot, and they can do that. It's It's really, really neat to see. But, you know, in helicopters, going back to the news services, I don't know if you know too many people have flown there, but... You're not flying sometimes the, uh, the most sophisticated equipment, although other times you are. You can go from, you know, big, you know, long rangers down to R-22s and R-44s for traffic. Have you ever uh, known anybody to go to the new services and do that type of flying? Not so much. Uh, I know that when, in the Coast Guard we had at, at the air station in Los Angeles, we had an extra aircraft that was really there to support um, Hollywood. And then because the Coast Guard, I don't know, they had much of a recruiting budget, but they had an aircraft that they really pushed out to those kinds of things. And I think that that kind of flying would be similar. Actually, you know, now that I think about it, I do have, I do have a friend that, that got a job flying like the traffic guy back and forth. Right. That sounds, honestly, I, I'm sure that's good flying. Um, it might get kind of tired of staying in the same area all the time. Here's my philosophy on flying helicopters. And, and flying in general, what's the coolest part about flying? Well, okay, it's the technical challenge. It's flying the sit, it's shooting the approach. It's flaring for the landing. Or if you don't have to, that's nice too. Um, but really, it's cool because you get to look out the window, right? You go somewhere new and, you're, and you, you said it a couple podcasts ago. How cool is it landing at San Diego and you look out your window and the pilot goes, hey, there's our hotel, and you drop below the roof line and you're looking up at it. How cool is it to fly up the East River and look up at buildings that are 600 feet high? How cool is it to go out on a mission and, unfortunately, the only time you do is research people, but find yourself flying underneath a bridge for a, a limited amount of time? Those kinds of things, that's why I fly. That's why I chose helicopters. Now, if I have to fly lesser equipment... I'm probably going to have more opportunities to look out the window and see all that cool stuff and fly down the beach. And, you know, if I'm picking up logs or if I'm, you know, hauling executives to some swanky hotel roof landing pad, that's fine because I get to look out the window. That's what it has always been a, been about for me. You know, there's another part to that, too. And, and to me, it's it's a big part looking out that window. And, and that's your, your self-satisfaction. Um, some people I've found they, they are doing those type of things and say to themselves, and I had this happen recently, you know, I don't, I don't feel like there's any purpose to what I'm doing. You know, I'm enjoying it, but I'm not helping other people. I tell you, this week I did a lot of flights from the Northeast to Orlando. And who's on board the aircraft? 
a bunch of kids going to see Mickey Mouse and going to Disney and to have a really good time. I didn't, I, I just, I used to love to introduce people to flying and I didn't realize how much I enjoyed that till this week. I got to take all these kids, I, I, more than a dozen kids, I eventually brought up into the cockpit before we took off and let them sit in the seat, let them play with the controls, let them actually get a picture with their parents. And they were so excited. It was so, one of the, the, the greatest joys is to look into a child's face and them just be beaming with excitement and saying, wow, this is really cool. What do all those buttons do? That type of thing. It's so neat to see how excited somebody is about something. So I, I found another part of my, my passion for flying is introducing people to, to the, the, the mysteries and, and the magic of flight. Uh, even if they never want to become a pilot and they're just, you know, some, some kids, anybody. And showing them all these neat things in in the cockpit and what they do, that's something else that is really rewarding. And to add to that, people that fly helicopters, and I've had a few that have done this, doing search and rescue and doing firefighting, I have found there is there is so much enjoyment from those people and so much gratification in what they do. Because just like the, the person in the Coast Guard, they actually are making a huge difference in somebody's life by saving their life. And that is incredibly rewarding. That opportunity to uh, bring kids in the cockpit. And when you and I were kids, you could do that at altitude. That was awesome, wasn't yeah. it? Yeah, <laughs> no, no more of that. <laughs> as soon as you level up, you ding the valley like, ma'am, miss, can I, can I go to the cockpit? And they give you the wings, right? Yeah, How cool yeah. was that? Um, so in this, in this other career, we're talking a little bit about the Coast Guard thing, but I th I would say probably, I don't know, once a month we get a visitor, you know, some young kid that came down and said, hey, I, I think I might want to do this when I grow up. And we would have take him out there and let him climb around the helicopter. We couldn't take him for a ride. But, you know, I, we had a, met a guy, he's from Connecticut, Connecticut or Long Island. He used to come by, he probably came down four or five times. And uh, he, he, was, he was real young when he started. And, you know, we'd, we'd always take him out there and he'd sit in the op center and watch us take off. And that was really cool and stuff. So fast forward probably, I don't know, eight, eight years later. And, and uh, the Coast Guard trains their pilots at Navy Flight School. And part of the deal is they give up some pilots to go down there and be instructors. So I was an instructor. And I was down there teaching an aerodynamics class or something. And who walks in with the dang kid that we used to give tours to in Brooklyn? And he said, Steve, I remember you. And I remembered him too. I remember meeting his dad because his dad came down a couple times. He said, I just want you to know that the reason I'm here is because you guys took all that time and, and introduced me. And that's really very cool. That's awesome. And uh, that, that's a terrific story. And, and, and that person now is, is uh, out there flying. And doing the same thing you're doing. He's still flying now. <laughs> That's terrific. But now you just said you were a Navy uh, helicopter instructor? Yeah, yeah, sure. The Navy, the Coast Guard, the Marines, and uh, actually uh, helicopter pilots from a number of countries actually actually train down there. Matter of fact, I went through flight school with some Danish guys. And, and this speaks to, you know, our experience in travel isn't quite as cool as yours because you get to fly places every day. But, you know, we'd go on a back of ship. And we were on the pier in Flensburg, Germany. And uh, we're walking down. We'd, we'd, we'd gone on the back of the ship, you know, the Coast Guard Cutter. We were tied up at the pier. And we were walking into town, my, my buddy and I. And uh, we had our fancy dress uniform on. And there was this big Danish ship, 400 feet long. And it had a, uh, what was on the back? It, wasn't, it was a... Uh, 
It escapes me, but I'll think about it in a second, probably as soon as we're done with this. Anyway, their helicopter was sitting in the back. And uh, so, you know, they, they had the, the little brow out there and they had a little guy dressed up at the bottom. They were having some kind of a reception up there, a cocktail party. And um, so he said, well, we're going to go bluff our way. We're going to go get on this ship and go to the party. It looks like a great party. So we go up to the little guy and we're like, yeah, we're from the Coast Guard cutter over there. We're the, we're the pilots. You know, we got the wings on, right? We like to come. We're, we're going to work. We're here for the party. And the guy says, well, hang on a minute. And he looks at the list and he goes, yeah, you're not on the list. I'm like, well, that's okay. We're, you know, we're sailing with you guys. We're part of this exercise. We're, we'll just go on up here. And the guy's like, nah, I don't think that's going to happen. So we start to walk away and I hear this, hey, Steve, darn if it isn't one of the guys, one of the Danish pilots that I went to flight school with. He says, come on up here. So we end up, we end up spending, the, spending the week with him. That's, uh, that's very cool. That's an awesome story. And, you know, getting back to that, what you said about the Navy, though, um, I just, I'm trying to figure out what, what did Navy use the helicopters for? Do you know? Like, can you explain that? Uh, Navy missions, yeah. I mean, they're, they're, uh, I, I, it really depends. They have a bunch of different communities. I'll get you a Navy pilot if you want to talk to Navy, Navy pilot. I work with a bunch of them. But yeah, yeah, and he'll tell you about, uh, delivering weapons and he'll tell you about delivering people and he'll tell you about hauling the mail and, uh, doing search and rescue and looking for, uh, for mines and, uh, you know, doing, doing security missions. They, they really have some great missions. The, the only bad thing about them is they're very well equipped for helicopters. So they can take a bunch and they can stay out for a long time. We go out on a Coast Guard cutter for a week and we've used up all their fuel and they send us home. So, yeah, and you do use a lot of fuel, that's for sure. Getting back to, to your career, you have a family with, and you have a child and all. And um, what was it like? I mean, did, were you a Coast Guard pilot during that? And were there any challenges as far as being in the Coast Guard and being a pilot and having a family? I, I think that question is very relevant to picking your career. Uh, most of the time when I was flying all that crazy stuff, uh, we didn't have kids. Um, I went to Navy flight school as an instructor, and I had a, I had a we had a young child. She was born just before we got there. So one of the last real like Coast Guard rescue missions I flew was before we had kids. And I remember we had a guy in our wardroom who had five kids. Okay. <laughs> so imagine this, okay? It's two o'clock in the morning, right? The wind's howling, it's raining, you look at the radar, there's all this crazy red stuff out there. And it, it's <laughs> it's like something out of a movie. When the squall comes through, the radio comes alive. Coast Guard, Coast Guard, hey, we're sinking, we're this, we're that, we're scared. Sometimes when it passes through, they're all okay. But but there's a lot of activity that happens when a storm front comes through and there are people out at sea that are caught off guard. So um, it, it, that certainly elevates your mm, level of excitement and your, gets your attention and it starts to make you think about things like, you know, w when the people are screaming on the radio, it really, I think, makes you think about those five kids at home. So my buddy who had five kids and at the time I had none and I was a young guy, uh, you know, two o'clock in the morning, I remember one night it was, it was the, the issue was fog. Okay. The issue was fog. It went like pretty much to the ground. And I think that our takeoff minimums were uh quarter mile visibility, eighth mile visibility maybe that we needed to have. And we were inside Kennedy's airspace, so we could get an instrument departure out of there once we got off the ground. But, you know, it was really bad weather. It was like, you know, if you were out there, you wouldn't have the men's to shoot the ILS back into Kennedy to get home. So you had to have a plan B, okay? And I, there was something going on offshore, and it was a real case. It was a, you know, boat taking on water. And it was one of those things where 
it, the weather was so bad, we were not authorized to fly in it without the commanding officer personally giving us permission. So we, you know, we go out and check the weather and we talk to folks that are out in the area and the boats and, you know, try to get a good picture of what the risk is and call the CO and say, hey, Skipper, you know, here's the deal, boat taken on water, um, we'd like to go. And then he would make the call. Well, <laughs> this guy, and God bless him, but he was always, he was always the one that was like, uh, let's check the weather one more time. Like, come on, man, let's go. Looks good. You know, you young guy, you got nothing to lose. Let's fire it up. We'll figure it out when we get that. We'll go, we'll stick our nose in it and see how bad it is. Yeah, let's check the weather one more time. And, and I, I suspected that, that that's what was going on. But until you start having kids of your own that you have to come home to, um, you don't really understand. My wife used to say, I don't think it's fair that you have to go out in that storm because that fisherman didn't check the weather. And I get that. That's, of course, that's what we got paid to do. Right. But to to your point, I, th- I think you're dead on. It may be a young man's game. And now as you get older, you get more experience and you have the skills and the chances of you making it back are better. But for somebody contemplating that career, I, I think it's a consideration. I think it's a very real consideration, like choosing to be a fireman. You know, you look at that as far as an, an airline pilot, say, which I do. You, you look into those careers and you say to yourself, well, I'm going to be away from home and you know, I I don't know if I want to do that. Or say you get into something more high risk, like putting out fires with an aircraft, uh, then you may not make it home. So you, you think about those things and you become a little overly cautious. You know, it's interesting on this point. Um, you know, my fiance was in the Navy and was down in Antarctica. And, you know, you, you th- she said, you know, I'd never want to marry somebody in the military because they're they're gone so much, especially somebody on a boat. And you don't think of it from a you know perspective of somebody sitting at home. So when you do choose a career, you have to realize that you know your family's at home, et cetera. I've in in my career in the airlines in general, you get more seniority, you're home a lot more. You know, this month I'm home twenty days, next month I'm home twenty two days. So that's that's a lot of home time. And that's not so bad. But there's times when, when you're gone for two, three weeks at a time and you never make it home and you know, the person back home was having to deal with the hot water heater that broke, the air conditioner that broke, the car that's not running right. And uh, those are, or the kid that's sick, that type of thing. And that's something you really have to consider is that you're not going to be there every, no matter pretty much most aviation jobs, you're not going to be home every night. There are some that you are, but especially in the Coast Guard job, you're, you could be out for a while. Now, what would be the longest you'd be away in the Coast Guard? It really depends on what you fly. Um, we used to patrol down in, in Gitmo, uh, patrolling the Windward Pass down there. To Unfortunately, some folks in other countries want to make it here. God bless them. Uh, but a lot of times they did it in an unsafe way, you know. they take a 30-foot 30, 30 boat and put, you know, 60 people on it, uh, 70 people, whatever. They And, and so we, we patrolled those waters for their safety. And when we did that, we would fly down to Guantanamo Bay and just operate fly patrols out of there every day. So on a profile like that, you may be gone for, I don't know, two, three weeks. The longest I was, as a pilot, the longest I was ever away was, uh, was a 10-week trip. Not like my Navy friends. My Navy friends will be gone for a year. The, the, the Coast Guard mission is, generally speaking, going to be fairly close to shore in the mainland U.S. And because the service is very small, you're not going to have the infrastructure to maintain a helicopter, which requires quite a bit of maintenance, at a deployed site for very long. There's some, some exceptions down in the Caribbean where, they, where they're uh, doing drug interdiction operations. 
they may have some some resources down there to stay a little bit longer. But generally speaking, you want to talk about good deals. If you're a helicopter pilot, Coast Guard's the good deal. It's that simple. Well, with that, gosh, I, I appreciate your coming here. Is there any other advice you could give to folks that are listening right now, uh, looking towards a career in, in the uh, Coast Guard and also in, in helicopter careers in general? I guess, uh, you know, you, you have to figure out what your end state requirement is. If you want to go to the airlines, I don't recommend flying helicopters if you want to fly for the airlines. Go get your job flying fixed-wing airplane. If you're flying because you love flying, then helicopters might be the answer. If you're flying because you love the mission, uh, you know, and, and you're, you're thinking about the military path, pick the service that has the mission. For me, I like to fly. I don't love to fly like you do. I like to fly. And I like to fly on the mission. I love to fly on the mission, actually. If I could do that for my whole life, I would. The problem is you get too senior and they don't let you fly anymore. That's, that's the un- unfortunate downside of it. So I would say, you know, it, career advice-wise, if you want the, if you want, and that's not the easy button, but if you want to follow a well-blazed path, the military will give you that. You show up at day one and you go to flight school and they send you to this school and they send you to that and they evaluate your skills and they see what aircraft you're suited for. And then they give you advanced training in it. And every year you get your upgrades and you get your check rides and all that stuff. And you become a pilot. You just get on that path and you follow that path. If you're going to go the route that a lot of your listeners do, you know, they're going to need a guy like you to help them find that path. Because that path isn't, isn't so, it's not certain. It's not cut and dry, right? It really depends on where you start. With a, with a Coast Guard career track, all you have to do is get to square one. You just have to get the flight school. Once you're there, you, you know, you do what everybody else does and you're, and you're fine. For you, though, golly, you know, yeah, maybe, maybe going to a place like flight safety is the answer. Maybe, you know, buying your own plane is the answer. I don't know. And the answer changes. Right. It's very specific to the individual. And if you're someone that needs that, that structure, then yeah, definitely a flight safety. You want to do it or, or any of the large schools, I should say. And, and if you're somebody that doesn't want that structure, say has, uh, their own business or, and wants to get into flying, then, you know, maybe a different route, maybe going out to the local airport, finding a good instructor and going that way might be the best thing to do. So you, you like Steve's saying, you really have to look at your own situation and, uh, you have to, Decide what it is you want to do and, and go for it. If you want to be a helicopter pilot, then then go for it. If you want to be an airline pilot, then you need to do that. If you want to be a mechanic, you need to go that route. But go in the route that you want to go in and, and just realize that things will change. Like, Steve, you know, you've been flying for a long time. Do you still fly at all? I don't fly. I I, I, mean, I, I could. Right. I just, uh, you know, I'm... I'm into uh, driving my car and I like boats and I like hanging out with my kids. You know, it's going to be time later in my life. Yeah, I, I think so. But but I would say this. If somebody is thinking about flying, you need to do it, you know. If you want to do something crazy like go rescue people off boats, go do it. Because um, we had a discussion the other day. Somebody said something about, you know, your bucket list or if you die tomorrow. And, uh, oh, I know what it was. It was, um, you know, what was your I, I, I've made it moment. Well, my I've made it moment doesn't have anything to do with finances or or house or car or anything. It's about doing the thing you want to do. And I think the day we did our first rescue was was that day. And then after that, you know, you go, well, 
I'm, I'm 70, 80, 90 years old sitting on the front porch. That number keeps moving, by the way, as I get older. <laughs> 70 used to sound loud. It doesn't sound so loud anymore, man. This is great. No, it doesn't. <laughs> so let's say I'm 90 and I'm going to move it hopefully again. I'm sitting on the front porch and my, my great grandson comes up and says, Hey, great grandpa, you know, what, what'd you do with your life? And I, I think I can tell him I got to do what I want. And he says, you know, well, you never got to go to Egypt or you never got to go do this. Well, you know what? It doesn't matter. I got to do the one thing that I wanted to do and you can't take that away. That's a great story. And that, and that, that's a great little analogy. And I, I think that's a great story that you brought to us here. And I really appreciate you doing that. That was a great way to end it right there. That, that was, um, and Steve, you are, you really are inspiring. And, uh, even though you don't fly now, you've had a wonderful uh, life of flying, and you never know, you might get into it again. But, you know, you, it's interesting. You sound like somebody with a lot of passion. You don't sound like someone who's just hung up, retired, and, and, and hung around. What What are you doing now? I've been doing uh, – I'm an engineer. I've been doing test work. I test equipment for the government, make sure it does what it's supposed to do. You know, there's going to be a day in my life when, uh, you know, I can move into another phase. And I'd like to keep doing that, but like you – I always got something on the side. My latest project is called the Sports Car Junkies Business Podcast. So the premise there is, you know, when you go to a cocktail party, right, people end up talking business. Well, guess what? When I go to a party here, people grab me and they go, hey, you need to meet this guy. He's got a BMW. You need to meet this guy. He's got a Formula Ford. And those are the guys I like to hang out with. And what I learned over time is, you know what? We all do business and we network for business, but I end up getting drawn to the guys that like cars. So the premise here is, you know, maybe there's a network of people out there that like cars and like business. And just like I think there's a network of people out there that like airplanes and like business. You know, it's interesting you put this together. Now, how would they, they find that podcast? Because I've listened to parts of it, uh, and it's, it's really cool. You learn quite a few things. How, how do they get to it? Well, just like you were on iTunes, uh, probably the easiest way is just to go to the website, sportscarjunkies.com. And there are links and players to the show and, you know, maybe some, some fun pictures and those types of things. So this is also somebody who's like a gearhead because there's a lot of those in aviation. <laughs> God bless. It's a lot of the same people. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. It's interesting, though. You know, I, I never really got into cars and new cars. I'm not really into the new technologies like I am in the aviation world. But I love old, old cars, you know, and, and the Model Ts and maybe more antique cars. And I do go to car shows and, and love to watch the development of cars. And I, I like to parallel them with the development of aviation. It always seems the cars are, are ahead of the game, but that's because so many things have to be certified to be put on an airplane, like fuel injection. You know, who would have thought that would take so many years to get into an airplane? There is hope for you then. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right? There's hope. You know, we go through phases in life. Yes. You know, for a while you learn about cheese maybe, and then you learn about, I don't know, uh, meats, or you right. learn about, you know, beer if that's your thing. And, and and you go through those different phases in life. So maybe a little bit later in life, maybe you'll be a, a gearhead. Yes. Who knows? Who knows? You know, re- restoring old aircraft is very interesting. Restoring old cars is very interesting too. So the neat thing is that all these people in this community, this aviation community and all, they, they kind of come together and they, they can, they, 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 cross-pollinate and and you know that that's one of the coolest things about being in aviation is that people are pretty interesting they're very curious people they're a lot of times type a a minus b and they always have something going on just like you do with with your podcast there 
Um, but, you know, I, I really appreciate your coming here today. If you don't mind just staying around for just one second, there's a couple things I'd like to announce. Number one, that, you know, there, there's a book. As we were talking here, I just couldn't stop thinking about this book that I had read recently. And it's uh, it actually is a book that helps you move towards doing something that matters. And that was a common theme, as you could tell, through this whole conversation. Uh, it's it's a book called Start. It's by John Acuff. And he has this really neat book, and I have some links at, at the website at aviationcareerspodcast.com at the bottom of the show where you can actually go out there and purchase that book or, and listen to some samples of the audio book. Just an awesome book about how to get moving towards a goal, your career goal, and, and how to just start, how to get moving in that direction. Because a lot of times, like we, you've heard us talking here, we get stuck in a holding pattern. We 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 just sit here, and we and we don't know what we want to do and, and what direction we should go into. But I think one of the most important things to do is just get going. Get get out there. Say you want to fly a helicopter, find somebody that's giving helicopter rides. I mean, they're all over the place, especially here in Florida. You know, just go down there and say, hey, I want to try that out. You never know. You might might get hooked or you might not. You might find out it's not for you, but it's it's a fairly inexpensive way to, to find out if that's what you want to do. The, the worst thing you can do is get into a career that someone else has told you that's that's what you should do because you have certain talents and you know it's important to use those talents but you also have to do something that that's really important to you and and that is is very fulfilling and is a worthy goal in your mind not in somebody else's you know you have to live the life that that you want to live you know just like Steve's done here i mean Steve you you've had a really I think a really cool career, both, you know, Marines, the Coast Guard, the Navy, flying helicopters, instructing, and, and now doing some engineer work. It's, it's really interesting. It's an interesting life. And, and, you know, at the end of your life, you'll, you'll be able to have that uh, great grandson sitting on your lap or granddaughter and, and you can tell them all these neat stories. I think that's terrific. You know, hey, Steve, I really appreciate your coming here and, and, uh, and I appreciate your service to our military. And, and I was wondering if, if I do have any questions from listeners, can I forward those to you? Absolutely. And, uh, you know, if there's if they want an introduction to somebody, they've got questions about that whole Coast Guard career thing, I'd be glad to help them get in touch with a local local person who can help them out. They want to talk about sports cars. They want to talk about podcasting. I I just like to talk to people, kind of like you. <laughs> Steve, once again, thanks. And, and thanks for coming by. And, and and to you listening right now, thank you for taking the time out of your schedule. And say you're driving the car, or you're, you're, say, working out like I do when I'm listening to podcasts. I, I'd encourage you to actually go to aviationcareerspodcast.com and take a look at some of these podcasts that I put out there. And this one in particular, because there's going to be a lot of links out there, some cool pictures and stuff that's going to help you. I'm putting together a lot of different resources, to, and I've actually hired somebody, like I said, to help me out with this, because I think it's really important to have those resources and to get the skinny and get the get the actually advice from the people that have actually done it. And that's why we put this together. We want to give you an inside view into those aviation careers. And if you're listening to this podcast because you're just interested in finding out more about what, what does a helicopter pilot do, what does somebody in the Coast Guard do, then, then I really appreciate you too. And, and I, and if you really enjoy this, I'd, I'd like you to send, go out there to aviationcareerspodcast.com and just take a look at our sponsors and visit them. They're the ones that really help me bring this podcast to you. Well, folks, once again, it's easy to find us, aviationcareerspodcast.com. If you have any questions, questions for Steve, really simple. Just go to aviationcareerspodcast.com, click on the contact page, and send us an email. When What we'll do is on this show, we'll 
actually read those questions. Of course, your you know your privacy is really important. So we'll just use your first name. We'll explain the situation and uh, ask your question to either me, one of our guests, uh, to Steve. We'll send an email and we'll read Steve's answer. If it's about uh, helicopter pilots in the Coast Guard, we'll read that answer right here on the show. So if you, if you get a chance, go out there, ask anything. And, you know, a lot of people are afraid to ask questions because they think it's too silly. But you know what? I had the same questions. Uh, Steve's heard the same questions over and over and over again. You know, what was your scariest moment? What was, you know, those same questions constantly come up. So don't be afraid to ask those. I'd, I'd really appreciate that. Well, once again, thanks for listening and safe flying. We'll talk again next episode. You have been listening to Aviation Careers Podcast, an aviation podcast about living your dream and pursuing an exciting aviation career. This aviation podcast is produced by the Valeri Aviation Corporation. Although hosts or guests may receive compensation for products and services discussed in this podcast, compensation never influences our opinion. Before purchasing any product or service, you should always do your own research. Music by Billy Wheeler. All rights reserved.